All right, dear children, move back to your seats. Keep it classy. Move on back. Got lots to do tonight. Praise the Lord. Father has some really wonderful things for us tonight. Any, can I get an amen? amen? Can I get an amen for you liturgical types? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. We have been in this monumental, gargantuan series on the spiritual gifts. By my calculations, this is maybe week 40, although I've just, I've just lost all sense of time and place. But it is good. Can you just give me, a, give me a little shout if you've learned just something, just something, just a morsel of the goodness of God and the way he's equipped you. Our hope and our passion behind this series is that each of you come to recognize the ways that God has specially and unique, uniquely equipped each of you to administer his love in the world. When we come together as the church, the reflection of God is in its best and most accurate and fullest form. And together, through the gifts, through the sharing of the gifts and the building up of one another, we see those gifts administered in the world in such a way that transformation comes and the kingdom is advanced. And so tonight, we're talking about the spiritual gift of mercy. Ooh, we're talking about mercy tonight. This is going to be fantastic. Let's just pray, and we'll get right into this. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here, that you are present, that you are for us. You're not against us. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for your presence. We thank you that it is the promise upon which all of the other promises hang. Father, we thank you for your tremendous mercy. Lord, I pray that we never, ever, ever take that for granted but that we always seek a deeper understanding of how it is that you have loved us so that we might love others well. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be ever pleasing to your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So tonight we're talking about the spiritual gift of mercy. In Paul's beautiful conversation of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 and 12, he begins to talk about the spiritual gifts being like the parts of a body, that each part has its own special value. And then he breaks for a moment, and he begins to talk about faith, hope, and love. He says, now, he, he's talking about the gifts. He says, hold on, now I'm going to talk to you about the most excellent way. And he begins this conversation. He gives all of these examples of different gifts. And he says, but if love is not a part of those gifts, they mean absolutely nothing. If love is not part of the gifts, if love is not in the, in the essence of what it is that I'm doing, then it means nothing, and I am nothing. He says, all of these gifts, they're beautiful, and they're necessary, and they're temporary. But the greatest of these is love, because love is eternal. Love never ends. And so when we're talking about the gift of mercy tonight, and, then, and in a couple of weeks we're going to talk about faith, we're looking at gifts that are kind of the undergirding of all other gifts. It's, it's, the, it's the one um, gift that is sewn in and woven through all of the other gifts to create the tapestry of God. And I love that about mercy. Now, when I was growing up, 
as, as many of you in the church, you probably have these little phrases that were taught to you that defined some of the Christian-y words that we come across in Scripture. And oftentimes, those can be very helpful. But I found that very often, they become these boxes that prevent us from really encountering what it is that God means through the words that He's given us. And I think one of these, a great example, is mercy. When I was growing up, it was said, mercy is you not receiving what you do deserve, and grace is you receiving what you don't deserve. Did anybody else hear that growing up? You know, it, it, in a certain way, it helps to create a difference between mercy and grace. But I think it's the beginning of a conversation. Because what I picture when I picture mercy as me not getting what I do deserve is God kind of holding back his wrath. Now all of a sudden I have a God that looks a little bit more like Zeus. He's got, a, he's got a hand full of lightning bolts, and he's waiting, and he's going to hit me with it because that's what I deserve, but he's just going to wait a while just to kind of see what I do. And that's the problem that I have with that definition of mercy. It's, passion, it's passionless, it's passive, and it's reactionary. And it, if, if that's where the conversation ends with mercy then we get stuck with this monstrous God, the kind of God that so many of us were delivered from, a God who is distant, ambivalent, not particularly interested in us, kind of waiting for the time at which he can kind of shoot us and fire lightning bolts at our tuchus or whatever he wants to do. But the more that I've encountered Scripture over and over again, I do not find this kind of distant, disinterested God. Amen. The more that I encounter scripture, and more precisely, the more that I encounter the reality of the God as fully revealed in Christ Jesus, not partially, but fully revealed in Christ Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory. That means when God shines, Jesus goes forth. When I encounter this God, I realize how short that definition of mercy falls. Because, my friends, we do not worship a God who is passive. We do not worship a God who just holds back and waits to see what happens. But God is moving his story forward of his creation, and everything he does by nature is active. And that's how I want us to approach mercy tonight. And so here is my thesis. People with the gift of mercy keep God's story moving forward. I want to use a lot of that idea of story. I think it's a good analogy for us to step into this understanding of what it is that mercy truly means in the kingdom of God with the God that we worship revealed in Christ Jesus. So we looked at, you know, as a child, it was this idea of mercy or grace, mercy or grace. One of the other things that I think I kind of learned along the way is that you can be a person of mercy or you can be a person who pursues justice. You have that option. Whether it's in the little confrontations of your, the everydayness of your life, or it's these big global catastrophes, we have a choice. Either we choose mercy, or we choose justice. Think about times in your life where you've been in confrontation with somebody. Maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's a stranger, whatever it might be. And there comes this moment of tension in your relationship where there's a place of brokenness, there's a place of something being unresolved. And we step into it and you say, oh my, okay, do I pursue what's right or do I try to be nice? Now, if you worship a dualistic 
schizophrenic God who sometimes he's merciful and compassionate and loving, and then sometimes he's just really mean and awful and judgmental and wrathful. You become like what you worship, and you go through life being split on those two paths. Either I'm going to be merciful and nice and let people kind of take advantage of me, or worse yet, I'm going to let people take advantage of other people because I don't want to stir the pot. Or I'm going to choose justice, which means I'm going to come in and I'm going to lay down the hammer with what I know is right, and I'm going to establish what is right by any means possible, and you better not get in my way. Now, you see, when man begins to define mercy, when man begins to define justice, those are the places that we arrive. Because it's very hard for us in our human nature to understand how mercy and justice can cohabitate and can live in the same place. Often we see this either or. Now let's talk about this in the context of story. In the story that man would write for himself, judgment says your story has already been written. Think about this. When we're in moments of trial, when we're in moments of contention with other human beings, we are saying to the other person, when we judge other people, we are saying, your story has already been written. Who you are in this moment, because of what you just said or because of what you did, you will be that forever. Do you know what we, how we define despair? Despair is the fear that tomorrow is going to be exactly like today. And we hold people in despair, whether it's through taking offense, whether it's through unforgiveness, whether it's through bitterness, or sometimes even through indifference. What we are saying to other people is, you are always going to be who you are today. You cannot change. Your story has already been written. And so I want to show what this looks like. I need a volunteer from the audience. Um, Joel, thank you for volunteering so much. Come on up here. So what happens is if Joel and I are, I'm going to do something a little bit more intimate than you just holding this. What happens is that if, if Joel and I are walking through life together as friends, and there's a moment, there's an event of offense, and I allow that offense to be, turn into unforgiveness, and I allow that unforgiveness to turn into bitterness, essentially what I have done is reached around Joel's torso, and I have tied him up. I've bound him. And I've bound him in this moment. Perhaps it's something that he said. Perhaps it's something he didn't say. Perhaps it's something that he did, or perhaps it's something he didn't do for me. And I've bound him to this moment. I've bound him to this, this, the decisions that he made in that, at that point. Huh? And this is what we do when we hold people in unforgiveness, or when we're bitter. And if I don't do anything about that place of unforgiveness... I'm going to continue to try to walk down the path of life with Joel. Take me by the hand, Joel. Yes. And I'm only going to get so far. And I'm going to keep trying to move down the story and be like, Joel, why aren't, come on, we've got, come on, we've got to get on with the story. We've got to continue moving on. And he can't. Now, maybe I'm not even aware of it because the bitterness is so subtle in my life. But I've bound him to that a moment, that event back there. And so what needs to happen when we pursue reconciliation, when we pursue mercy with one another, is to walk each other back to those moments of offense, back to the place where the root of bitterness was founded, and we need to cut them free. So that when we cut someone free from bitterness and offense, when we use the practice of forgiveness and we offer mercy, we're able to continue to walk down that path together 
as friends and as brothers. Everybody give Joel a round of applause. Thank you, Joel. You see, man's justice looks nothing other than judgment. And we are called not to judge one another. Because when man takes justice into his own hands, he can only halt the story of another, whether it's a person or a community or a nation or an ethnic group. Judgment says your story has already been written and it will not move past this place. I think this is the beautiful place where we see the gift of mercy inhabit itself because mercy says your story is a work in progress. Your story is a work in progress. It has not been fully written yet. In fact, mercy comes along and says, your story is currently being written as you and the Lord cohabitate and co-conspire to write that story. And I believe that people with the gift of mercy lead the conversation in how all of us are come to understand how history works. The people with the gift of mercy are not only are they able to see the root that has stopped someone from moving forward in their lives, but they're also able to take that 30,000 foot view to see the story of God, to see what it is that God has done since the creation of the world, what has climaxed in Christ Jesus and the outpouring of that through God's spirit and through his church to come alongside of people in places of desperation where they have been halted and diminished and say, no, 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 your story isn't done. God has more for you. There is more to come. And the gift of mercy takes us by the hand and walks us into that next place. So how do we, as human beings, reconcile the ideas of mercy on the one hand and justice on the other? Turn with me, please, to Psalm 85. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13. I've been living inside of, of especially verse 10, for a very long time. It's, it's one that has kind of just stirred something up within me. It's one of those verses that you come to time and again. You say, there's a little bit more here. There's a little bit more. And as you continue to inhabit that scripture, the Lord continues to reveal to you what it truly means. So I want to read verse 10, speak on that for a moment, and then we'll move on. Psalm 85, verse 10. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Let me read that one more time. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. How much do you love that? We've got these ideas. On the one side, perhaps, we say faithfulness and righteousness because many of us have learned righteousness is right standing with God. So that means you do what is right, and you've got to be correct, and that's what righteousness means. So you've got to have all your doctrine in order, and you've got to make sure that you enforce the rules of God with the severity that they deserve. Again, the dualistic, schizophrenic God creates dualistic, schizophrenic followers. And then when we talk about faithfulness and that small understanding of who God is, then I'm to be faithful to what God's doing. I just do what he commands. And how often in the moments of judgment do we use that excuse? I'm just being faithful to what the Lord said. This is what he said. This is the truth. Deal with it. But what we've done is we've taken the words of God and we've actually 
halted someone else's story. We've spoken curses over them that have prevented them from continuing to move forward. We've removed hope from their stories. But I think this is the beauty of a whole God, a holy God, a God who's above and beyond our understanding, yet opens himself up for us as a mystery to be explored where we in our human tendencies make this dichotomy between either being merciful or pursuing justice. God gives us that third path down the middle where those things are able to meet. You see, this can't happen on our own. We can't make those kind of decisions on our own. That's why God has gifted us with his Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God, the living Spirit of God is in you right now. He's invested himself in you. He is transforming you right now by the renewing of your mind. And he's also taken your heart of stone and he's turning it into a heart of flesh. This is what God does. He's in the business of taking curses and turning them into blessings. He's in the business of taking stories that have fizzled out and, and tying on a new beginning and new stories and continuing to draw it forward into his most glorious future where creator and creation are fully reconciled. And this Holy Spirit guides us to conclusions where justice and mercy reign together. Isn't that beautiful? Think about, again, think back to those moments where you're in contention. There's something that's happened in a relationship and it's just stopped. It's stopped moving forward and you don't quite know what to do at that moment. That's the place for us to be open-handed and allow the Spirit of God to move in us and through us, to submit our definitions of what these things mean when we talk about mercy or justice or faithfulness or righteousness, and to allow the Lord to work through those things. And when we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit in those moments, He draws us into newer and deeper conclusions. Let's continue reading in Psalm 85 and verse 11. So I want you to take this mental image Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. So when our faithfulness is us submitting to God, and allowing him to work in the middle of all of the contentious areas of life, these little tensions that we have in the kind of decisions that we need to make in the moment. We see this new life, this new path opens up before us, and the Spirit takes us by the hand and walks us into conclusions that we never could have come up with on our own terms. That's the beauty of what it is that the psalmist David is saying here, and he uses this agricultural language that faithfulness springs forth from the ground as fruit itself when righteousness looks down on fertile soil that's able to receive the rain, that's able to receive the sun, the goodness of God. And that fruit comes forward and it sustains us and it grows and it keeps us alive. You know, in storytelling, sometimes we use the term deus ex machina and it means God out of the machine. And especially in Greek plays, they would have this issue where they'd write their story and their characters are doing this little thing in the script and all of a sudden they would work themselves into a corner and they don't know what to do. 
So what some people, the solution they came up with in ancient Greek plays was to literally have someone hanging on a crane and to lower them down into the story. And this person would represent Zeus or Hera or Hermes or Apollos or one of these other gods. And the god would do something, would rearrange something or would say something that actually broke away whatever was making the stoppage in the story so that the story could continue on. Normally we assume that's bad storytelling. And if you're a storyteller, you know, don't do that just like pie in the sky thing just shows up. What this looks like in contemporary terms, okay, caveat, I love Lord of the Rings. Anybody else love Lord of the Rings? Can I get an amen? Okay, what I'm about to say is not heresy. It's just a question. It's just a comment. Those dang eagles, right? Come on. This story is going along, and all of a sudden, when it just doesn't seem like anything can move forward, that we're stuck and we're done, what happens? An entire flock of gigantic eagles flies in and saves the day. In the movies, they use it like three times. There's, there's only six movies to make matters worse. If these eagles were on our side the whole time, why didn't they just beckon the eagles to come to Rivendell to pick up Frodo and the ring, you hear me, Drew, and just to fly over to Mordor and just drop it into the hole on the top of the volcano? The movie would have been way shorter. I digress. But this is the idea of deus ex machina, that we get to a point in our story where we can't move any farther forward. We, we don't know what to do. And our story has been halted. It's been stopped. And that's the place where the Spirit of God, who has been with us the whole time, is able to move within us and to show us the path where mercy and justice meet and kiss one another. And it enables us to move on into new life. I want to carry on this agricultural metaphor by looking at some verses in Leviticus 25, everybody's favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> Leviticus 25 Verses 8 to 13, we're going to read about the year of Jubilee. <laughs> Somebody already knows it. Yeah! <laughs> Leviticus 25, beginning of the 8th verse. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, which is great math. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then... Have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet through your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Now, again, if you grew up in the church in the 90s, you've got a song going through your head right now, and yes, we're going to sing it. Ready? Come on. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice. It's a year of Jubilee. Out of science till salvation comes. Key change. Behold, he comes, riding on the clouds, shining like the sun. At the trumpet call, lift your voice. It's a year of jubilee. 
don't die until salvation comes. Now, if you want to know how to get the Holy Spirit in the room, number one is reverb, and number two is key changes. We were just talking about that earlier. But I love that I grew up with that song because it's, Jubilee is like the best. It's the best. Jubilee was this year where all debts would be eradicated, where all slaves would be set free, and everybody would come back home, come back to the place they started, to come back to the family and to rejoice and to celebrate. The year of Jubilee is a year of mercy. And I love that. Is that not what we see in Christ Jesus? That we receive the ultimate jubilee. That all of our debts, all of them, not some of them, all of our debts have been eradicated. That all of us, although we were enslaved at some point in our lives, have been set free. And we've been called home. We've been called back to the land of our family. To eat off of the fruit of the land. Many of you know I'm a big fan of Pope Francis. Right? He's declared that the following year, beginning in December and running through to the end of November of next year, is going to be a year of jubilee. In the Catholic Church, every 50 years or so, they declare a year of jubilee. And it's this year in which the mercy of God is going to be particularly manifest within their community. And they are empowered one to another to continue the process of forgiveness and release and freedom. And I love that idea. I love that idea. I think the even more powerful idea that what we have in the truth of Jesus in the age of the Holy Spirit and the age of grace is that every year for us is a year of jubilee, right? Every year is a year of jubilee. And we get to celebrate that. Francis, in his decree for the following year, said this, wherever the church is present, the mercy of the Father must be evident. Wherever there are Christians, everyone should find an oasis of mercy. Can we all agree with that? That as Christians, we're called to be the oasis of mercy. We're called to be the place that most beautifully demonstrates the merciful love of God. Where debts are paid, captives are set free, and people are invited home. This is the beauty of the gift of mercy. Mercy breaks barriers that hold another's growth. It breaks down the barriers, whether it's the barrier that we have put in place in someone else's life because of our words, because of our actions, because of our bitterness or our unforgiveness, or whether it's the barriers and the curses that have been spoken over other people. When we invest ourselves with the gift of mercy, we are able to step into the world and remove those barriers. This week in the news, perhaps you've been reading about the refugee crisis coming out of Syria. At this current moment, there are 11 million people that have been displaced. 7.6 million people within Syria itself and several million that have been displaced into the greater area. Perhaps you've seen the, the heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching picture of a two-year-old boy who washed up on shore in Turkey as his mother and father tried to escape. It's gut-wrenching. It hurts. It hurts to see these things. It hurts to see what's going on in the world. But you know, there's these several moments 
in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus turning and seeing the crowds or seeing an individual. And it says he had compassion on them. And the word for compassion in Greek is splachnon, and it means to, to clench your bowels. And it sounds so strange to us. But when we see these photos of Syrian refugees, is that not our response where we feel that gut-wrenching to say, this isn't right, this is not just, this is not okay. But you see, what we see in the life of Jesus is the gift of mercy fully demonstrated, that he feels that gut-wrenching when he sees the brokenness and, and, the, and the shame in people's lives, and he actually steps out to do something about it. Because mercy always compels us to get in the muck and the mire with the people that are hurting and broken. And I hope as you've been reading the stories this week, and perhaps mourning and lamenting the, the atrocities, you've also read stories of tremendous hope. Maybe you've read the story of the family who took their yacht to the Mediterranean and have rescued over 1,500 people from the seas, and they're clothing them, and they're feeding them, and they're finding answers for them. Maybe you read about the churches in Germany that have, the, the Germany has brought in 800,000 refugees and churches are opening up their entire lives to these people and feeding them and clothing them and caring for them. And so many of them are encountering the reality of what it means to be the church, that they're coming to Jesus, that they're converting. That's what it looks like when we're the church. And for some of us, this idea of welcoming in the immigrant and the stranger found, sounds very strange because we live in a country that considers anybody who's not already in our borders to be a pariah, that they're the bad guys, that they're coming to take something from us. But that's not what we're called to as the church. We're called to mercy. Because when we step into the gift of mercy, we are compelled by the Holy Spirit to work into the place where love and justice coincide where they cohabitate, where the answers that we come to are not answers that come out of man, but come out of God. And we become his hands and his feet. And we speak hope into the lives of individuals and the lives of nations that says, your story is not finished. It's not done yet. That little boy's story should not have ended being washed up on shore in Turkey. The people that are running away right now their stories are not going to end if we step up as the church and do something about it. So this week, we're going to post several resources for you to do something about it. Because if you feel that gut-wrenching pull, when you see injustice in the world, you also have to believe that you're empowered to do something about it. Because the Spirit of God, eternal all-powerful, the Spirit of God rests in you. He inhabits you. He has anointed you. And there is something you can do. As the church, we need to pray, but we also need action. In conclusion, for the Christian, every word and action is us whispering to the world, this is what God is like. Everything that you do, everything that you say, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you have his spirit residing within you, is you stepping out and saying, this is what God is like, and this is what God is like, and this is what God is 
Turn with me, please, to 1 John chapter 4. Again, if we see story, and we see this story of God through Scripture, we see the progressive revelation of God as mankind comes to understand in ever-increasing measure what this God is truly like. And that story climaxes with the story of Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory. And then we see people after that part of the story continuing to unpack it, to live in the reality of that Jesus, to allow that Jesus to interpret their lives and to transform them. And one of the last phrases that we come to in Scripture comes from 1 John. This is the conclusion of the story in Scripture to this point. And the writer says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who knows or everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That's the punchline. That's the conclusion. That's the full revelation. God does a lot of things, but God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Do you know what God's judgment on you is? Mercy. God's judgment on you is mercy. Everything that God does is an expression of love. Everything he does is an expression of his love. And God's judgment and justice is always restorative and always redemptive because God believes that our stories have not been written yet. And when we come into agreement with God, we begin to see the barriers fall to the wayside. The things that have told us, the curses that have been spoken over us that say, no, 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 you are who you were in that moment. You are exactly what you did. You're exactly what you said. We begin to see those things fall away and we call this the mercy of God and it is his judgment on us that we were not worthy but he deemed us worthy by the sacrifice of his son Jesus. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. You are a vessel of mercy. You are a vessel that God has crafted with his own hands to be able to hold his love. Now, if we hold that love to ourselves and we don't let go of it, it becomes putrid. It becomes unsterile. But if we allow that love to flow through our vessel into very broken areas and very dark places, the love of God is replenished and it continues to flow through us and it becomes this unending stream of life and mercy. That is the God that we worship. That's the God that we're all here for tonight. And that's the God who has called each of us to come into agreement with him 
and what he says about our stories and to offer those stories to the rest of the world to say, it's still a work in progress, but I know which direction it's headed. So if you'd stand with me, please. I want us to come together as the people of God and recite the words that we've recited since the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. The same words that our, that our Christ Jesus, our Messiah Jesus, gave to us in the Lord's Prayer. Because we find in the Lord's Prayer this, this call for earth on earth as it is in heaven to make the mercies of God, the untangible, unattainable mercies of God, real and living and present on earth. And so much of that happens through provision and forgiveness and release of others' debts and release of others' slavery and to speak life into other people in a way that they are called to continue to write their story with God. So let's come together and take hands and we're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Let's worship.